session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook. To get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my soundcloud page and podcast on spotify and apple podcasts again our studio number 310-441-0555 wanted to start the show today talking about fighting something really fun but really with fighting what i mean is arguments between individuals and specifically within um a romantic relationship between partners and uh, looking at different aspects of this. W- the most obvious one when we think of arguments is people yelling at each other or having a disagreement that involves raising your voices, getting upset with one another. And so this is a hot kind of a conversation or argument. That's one kind. The other kind is a cold conversation or what I want to call a cold war where people don't talk to each other, where they are giving each other, in English might be called the silent treatment, but in Farsi we might say when you don't talk to each other. And this can be used as a weapon in this Cold War, which is why I wanted to talk about that. So to begin with, yes, we have arguments. If you're in the process of being in any kind of relationship with someone that is close and a kind of romantic relationship, you have to expect that there will be arguments, disagreements. It is a natural part of any relationship. It's impossible for two people to be close with one another without things coming up that bother one or one another, even unintentionally. So it doesn't mean you are doing something wrong if your partner gets hurt necessarily, but they will be hurt by things you do or don't do. So we want to accept that as a starting point. So if we have that as our starting point, then we hopefully will be open to and okay with our partner sharing things. And actually, we would want to know. This is something I've talked about many times on the show because I think it's so crucial to have this mindset to realize if you are accepting, as you should, that you will do things that will hurt your partner, that will upset them and also not do things that maybe they want then the question really is would you want to know if you were doing that or do you not want to know and hopefully you would think well I would want to know if I'm doing something that hurts the person that I'm saying I love so much that I care for so much we should actually want to know and feel that uh, it would be better for them to tell us than not to tell us even though in the moment it doesn't feel good so it's one of those things many things in life are like this that in the moment it doesn't feel good but it's actually for the betterment of something, either our own physical health or well-being or the health or well-being of a relationship and our loved one in this case. So we hopefully will want to hear it from them and these things will come up and at times they can turn into an argument or into a type of a war. And so the first thing to keep in mind here when we're thinking of bringing something up using the same language of, of, of a war is if you're going to fire a shot 
you're more likely going to create a war than if you approach the conversation in a more soft, gentle, kind manner. So if you attack your partner, what do you expect other than for them to get very defensive and or offensive? They're going to attack you back, tell you why, why you're wrong, why they didn't do anything wrong, and it almost always is going to end up worse than how it's going to begin. Actually, John Gottman, who's done decades of research on marriages and also looking at how couples interact, has found that generally how a conversation starts is how it's going to end. So if it starts with aggression and nastiness and saying something mean or name calling, then you can be pretty sure it's going to end on a bad note as well. And so if you fire that opening shot, you should expect a war to uh, happen. You can't expect or shouldn't expect your partner is going to just respond with kindness or warmth when you attack them. So if you can bring it up in a more gentle way, that is good. And so we have arguments, they, they come up, things are going to obviously happen. And now it's what we do with them when they do. So as I mentioned, some people use the silent treatment as a next step in the process. There's an argument, there's a disagreement, and that's their go-to move to try to win. So sadly, it does become a, a war where you're trying to win against your partner and be the victor, which never works out for either of you. But that's one of the weapons that people try to have at their disposal. Now, I want to add here that this doesn't mean that taking a break from the conversation when things get heated is not a good idea. It's actually a very, very good idea and oftentimes the best thing you can do. Because once we get heated and we have our fight or flight system engaged, at that point you are almost completely unlikely to have a positive conversation because you are now more in a mindset of fight or flight. And usually you're in a fight with your partner that it's not going to go to a good place. So if you feel that you are heated, one or both of you, it can be very good and a very wise thing to say, you know what, we're both getting heated. We're not likely to make things better if we keep talking when we're both in this state of mind. Let's take a little break here. And what I actually recommend is not only to take the break, but make a plan of when you're going to talk or reconvene, which hopefully will be at least 30 minutes to an hour to give both people time to calm down. Uh, John Gottman has found also when measuring things like heart rate during arguments that men's heart rate tends to go up higher and also takes longer for them to calm down or to uh, get low again. So it could be good to go for a walk, do something to cool off, to allow yourself to calm down. And as I say, allow for cooler heads to prevail. Usually one, you get to calm down a bit so you can think a bit more clearly, but also with some time to process, usually you will be more clear about your own feelings, but likely will hopefully also be able to see your partner's side as well in that process of taking some time away. However, what can happen though, is I've seen people use this as a type of weapon too, rather than really meaning I want us to you know, take a break to cool down. What they're really doing is you're trying to avoid the conversation. So they could say, oh, we're getting really heated. So we should stop talking and let's talk about this later. And later turns out to be something like never. So it's kind of like the or the silent treatment that I'm going to talk about, but it's in a different way. It's just to avoid the conversation altogether. So it might not even be in a, a passive aggressive way of saying, 
I'm going to make you feel bad by not talking to you. They might actually talk about all other things and act normally, but they're using this as an avoidance to never come back to the topic. And then if the person brings up the conversation, they might say, I'm still not ready. So it still has a similar theme of avoiding talking about it, which happens when we use the silent treatment, but it's doing it in a slightly different way making it seem like first we need a break to calm down and then using it as a tool that, you know, I want to make sure we have the right time to talk about it or I'm not in a good mood to talk about it, which are important things, but we can be using that as an excuse. Sometimes when I'm working with couples in a matter of two weeks, three weeks, they'll say we didn't have time to talk about this issue. And I know obviously life is busy. If you have kids, it can make it even more busy and have a harder demands as far as when to have the time to talk in private. You obviously don't want to have a serious conversation in front of your kids about your marriage. So it's understandable. It makes it harder. But to say you don't have time in a few weeks, well, if that's the case, then your marriage is probably doomed to begin with. But more than likely, you actually do have the time. You are just both or one of you at least is avoiding the conversation so it doesn't happen which is understandable. They're not pleasant conversations, so we avoid them. But we want to make sure we face those unpleasant things because that's what allows our relationship to stay healthy and to grow. But now we get to the silent treatment, which is often used by, it could be by both members actually, but sometimes only one member is using that. And this is a type of a passive aggressive approach to communication, or really we shouldn't even say communication because there's a lack of communication, but it's a way of trying to use silence as an aggressive, a passive aggressive type of a uh, technique, which is, sounds strange because silence sounds like you're doing nothing, but it is a passive aggressive way and it definitely is a weapon in this cold war or creating a cold war between you and your partner. So essentially what you are doing is a few things. One is that you're saying, I am hurt by you, so I don't want to talk to you, and I don't want to even communicate with you. Another thing that tends to come up in these types of reactions is the person who talks first, or if I approach you, in some way I'm acknowledging wrongdoing, which this point I want to make very clear is definitely not the case. If you have a disagreement, an argument, a bad interaction with someone, the person that comes forward is not acknowledging they did something wrong. You're just acknowledging that there's something between the two of you that's not good. There's been a disagreement. There's been a rupture in the connection and the relationship. There's some type of bad feelings between both of you. So to come forward doesn't mean you're saying, I was wrong. That's why I'm coming forward. It's I care about you and I care about our relationship. So I'm coming forward. And you don't have to even necessarily start with an apology it probably will be in there, but it doesn't have to necessarily be I'm sorry is the first thing you say, because that does become part of the dynamic that some people use with the silent treatment is I'm never going to approach you and you have to come say sorry to me. And then even with some additional punishments and you have to say how bad you were and wrong you were, and I'm probably not going to acknowledge anything on my side, but then maybe we can be good again. So we, we shouldn't feel that approaching someone after an argument means you are the loser that you were wrong or that you're saying it was your fault. You're just saying, I care enough about you that I want us to talk, to connect and to work on this, to be able to uh, make things better between us. So it's not something that we have to think of makes us wrong or bad. But so using the silent treatment is a way of also trying to almost starve the person of your love and of your connection. 
So it's I'm going to be cold to you and cold to you no matter what, no matter what is happening, because essentially saying what you did was so wrong and so bad that it's not even worthy of me talking to you. And so basically they're trying to suck the oxygen out of the relationship, out of the room, and hoping that you eventually start to almost suffocate because you can't handle not getting that uh, attention or not getting that love, not feeling that the person is close to you, all those types of things, maybe even brings up fears of losing the person or the relationship or just that tolerance of how are we going to go on? You know, we have to go to that dinner party or this thing is coming up. I have to make things right before my family comes in town, whatever it might be. But the other the person who's using the silent treatment is using it as a type of Cold War tactic that I'm going to essentially force you to have to come to me and apologize. And so, of course, just by making it a aggressive technique that you're using to resolve a conflict, we should think it's something that obviously will be harmful and negative for the interaction in some way. So if you use this, it's something to think about. Am I someone who uses the silent treatment as a weapon in my relationships and how I communicate with others? And if you have a partner that does, it's also something to think about. And so after the break, I'll talk a bit more about the reasons why we do this, why it happens, and what we can try to do to overcome it. And also, if you do have a partner to, that does use this, what you can possibly do to try to make things better. So let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the use of the silent treatment in Farsi called Kardan, which is a unfortunate common technique that often is used. And going back to how it's even coming about, very often it's modeled for us. So we see it in our home. Maybe you saw a parent use this tactic and technique. And so as a result, you use it to try to get things to go your way or you think it's a good way to handle things if you're upset or angry or to make the other person uh, understand your pain or at least give you what you want or you think that you want. So I was saying before the break, there's a few ways this tactic we can say works in the sense that I wouldn't say it's work isn't healthy for the relationship, but obviously people employ it because they think it can be good. And so you're essentially trying to hurt your partner, almost starve them to the point where they want to connect or communicate with you. And so this is why it's a passive aggressive type of communication because you're not talking and you're not communicating, but you are being aggressive still by neglecting your partner or neglecting to talk to them. And so if you are using this technique, you might be aware of what you're doing. Oftentimes people when they're doing it, they, they don't use this type of language. They'll probably say it's because I'm so hurt or what they did was so wrong that I, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to even look at them. And after a bad argument, this goes back to what I shared in the previous segment, that at times taking a break can be the best thing you can do. It can be that after a bad fight or if someone does something very hurtful, a person will need some time to heal or process from that. So if you are someone who is being abusive in some way, whether it's physical or emotionally or verbally abusing your partner, and you have a really bad fight and you do some of those types of things, you shouldn't expect that they want to immediately talk about it or that they're going to immediately forgive you. So that is different from 
the silent treatment using it as a tactic, people can, of course, genuinely be very hurt by their partner and someone and need some time to heal. So there can be moments where this is a different thing than using it as a weapon, uh, the silent treatment. It could really be someone is very hurt and in pain and needs some time. And especially, we shouldn't think that just because we said sorry, they're, we should be forgiven instantly and they're ready to talk about it. Sorry is a uh, aspect or one part of reconciliation, but not a end point that I've said the word sorry, things are done. And you've maybe seen this where people say, well, I said sorry, so it should be finished. But no, it's an opening depending on what you did and what happened. There could be an amount of time that it takes for the person to start to feel better and be okay with talking and, and getting back in contact and repairing what has happened. But going back to when the silent treatment is used as a weapon, well, then they're trying to make you feel bad so that now you have to come to them. And they're taking very much a me versus you type of a mindset, which always is going to end in against the favor of the relationship and both individuals in that relationship. So we use this in a way to try to, to get our way because we think it's a better way or an easier way. Now, as I mentioned, if you're a person who your partner does this, you can express to them, we can never control someone's behavior, how much it bothers you that they do this, how much it upsets you that they do this and see what they say and communicate about it. Once you're talking again, it can make it very, very difficult. Another thing though you have to consider, so if you're using the silent treatment as a weapon, I think that's a very bad thing. But we also want to understand in a relationship, communication always involves both individuals. And so there can be things that are going on that you also want to be aware of. If your partner does not talk to you or uses the silent treatment, it could also be because they don't feel that they will be listened to or that you will hear them, or they don't feel like they can communicate with you in an equal way or with equal footing, so they're trying to use a different technique. So maybe you're being aggressive-aggressive, like blatantly aggressive, so they're using passive-aggressive technique to try to level the playing field or give themselves a chance. And I don't want to generalize because both uh, men and women use this technique, but we can see a cultural issue or cultural impact here as well, especially in Iranian relationships where men have generally had more of the power, both in the outside world, but also in the realm of relationships. They tend to have a little bit more um, power in what's going on. So we could understand that it was likely that women would have to use other techniques to try to get their way or to have their say in the relationship. So when we don't have the space and the right to express ourselves, we will try to find other ways to do so. And so the silent treatment, we can understand it developing as a way of trying to level the playing field when we are not given the appropriate access or appropriate rights or the appropriate space to express what we are saying. So that's one cultural development or way to look at these things when we think, well, someone is being, let's say, manipulative. Uh, oftentimes they are, and they're doing it blatantly and very aware of it. But oftentimes forms of type, what looks like manipulation is that the person has no other choice. So if you're not given the space to talk, not given the opportunity to express yourself, you will try other means. 
And so this is what I meant that if you're a partner, first of all, communicate if you don't like that your partner is doing that. But we can also evaluate, is there a way that I don't make it easy for my partner to express themselves to me? Am I giving them the space to tell me what they feel or what's going on for them? Am I overpowering them? No matter what we talk about, I say it's kind of my way or the highway. So if I'm being very aggressive and they can't match my aggression or maybe even they're choosing not to because they know it'll just get uglier or worse, they might be choosing passive aggressive types of ways of making things more even. In our war, they're using a cold type of tactic to try to balance what is going on. Because I've worked with couples and worked with families where the person stops talking to the per one, other, one person in the, the relationship or the family and they think, see, look, they don't talk and they're silent and they never share anything. And so it could be that they're using this silent treatment as a tactic or it could be that they recognize talking to you doesn't make a difference. If I share what I think or I feel, you undermine it or you demean it or you don't seem to care, it doesn't change anything. So why should I share what I'm going through, what's going on in my head, how I'm feeling? I'm going to just decide not to talk. So we do have to be aware that the other person in the relationship obviously can play a big factor in how things are happening. I always like to look at things in three ways when we look at a relationship. So both individuals, that's two of the ways. You have your own tendencies, your own personality, your own proclivities of doing things a certain way or another way, how you communicate, how expressive you are all sorts of things. So each individual in the relationship, that's two of the things we have to look at when we're trying to understand any issue or any concept in the relationship. And then the third one is the interaction between the two people, because obviously we're not going to be the same no matter who we are with. Some aspects might be more stable, but based on how that individual treats us, how they communicate, how they listen, how they talk, all sorts of other factors, that's going to affect how we communicate with them. So the same person that might use the silent treatment with one partner might not use it with someone else. And there are some people that it's a very stable part of who they are, and that's how they'll communicate with essentially anyone, no matter who they are with. So if you're in a relationship with someone using this type of a tactic, you do have to ask yourself, am I doing anything that might make it more likely for them to do this? Am I making them feel heard? The other way this can play out in a kind of opposite of the silent treatment is when people don't feel heard, they at times will explode. And sometimes even people who use the silent treatment, they can use the silent treatment until they then blow up at some other point. Obviously, that's not good either. So it's not to say I'm condoning someone blowing up or getting upset in that way. But it is important for us to look at what is happening. So when I work with families also, this happens a lot with teenagers where they feel that their parents don't listen to them. Now they might just say because they're not giving me what I want, they're not hearing me. But at times it's also because they really don't feel heard by their parents, so they don't tell them much. Or they do tell them something and the parents don't respond, so they say it louder and they say it louder and eventually they might explode or say it in a very uh, extreme way. So we see this escalation. If I say it at volume three and you don't hear me, well, I'll try it at volume five. And then if you still don't hear me at volume, volume five, I might go all the way up to volume 10. And so it's not to say it's okay if they're exploding, but we do have to look at, did I hear them when they said it in the lower volume? And again, hearing doesn't mean give them what they want. So if they say something, you have to say yes to the request. 
but are you making them feel heard and understood and having an actual conversation with whatever it is that they're bringing up? And unfortunately, what can happen, and sometimes when I work with people on the other side of it, if they're blowing up, is it can be painful because they feel like, I feel like I wasn't understood or heard by them at all. They kept ignoring me or not paying attention. And then all of a sudden, I blew up and now I'm the bad guy. I'm the one who did something wrong. And rather than it becoming about what I was upset about, it becomes about the fact that uh, I I did something that they um, didn't like, or I'm the one who said it in a bad way or in a wrong way. And so that becomes the issue at hand rather than whatever it was that I was upset about or not feeling good about being heard by my parent, partner, whoever it might be. So we can see the communication always is a dynamic process involving the individuals who are involved. And so we have to look at the relationship, but each individual has to look at themselves. And so most people won't want to acknowledge they use the silent treatment. They'll probably say others use it, or if they ever have done it, it was because the person deserved it or they didn't know what else to do. And sometimes that can be the case. But I always hope it's good we can look at ourselves more openly and genuinely to say, okay, what, what might I be doing? Why might I be doing this? And you can see that maybe you saw it modeled in your home. That's how your mom and dad talked or one of them talked to the other person or dealt with things. You might also notice that you feel like people don't care what you have to say or they won't listen to you or that people might leave you. So you want to put them in a position where they have to try to resolve things because if things are still not okay, maybe they have to stay around to fix what happened and I want to make them feel bad. And that's also another thing that people do with the silent treatment. It's a way of trying to show I'm so hurt by what you did. And maybe you were hurt by them, but hopefully it's something you can let them know, express to them directly how you were hurt rather than showing them over weeks. And that's why it is passive. So rather than saying, look, what you did really hurt me and upset me. I I was very shocked that you said that. It hurt my feelings. We're saying, let me let this person find out over the course of a week of me not talking to them that I am upset. And when we make things passive, we even take away in some ways the power from ourselves to directly express what we're feeling because they might have to try to guess, this is why you were upset or this is what made you angry. But at the end, they might really not know until you make it clear. And when all this time has passed, now it changes the whole narrative of what, what is going on. So just like when you explode, it becomes less about the issue at hand and more about what you were Uh, doing in this meantime of the silent treatment. You might now get punishment from your partner or they might get mad at you about how you've not opened up or not talked to them for a week or however long it might be. But we have to understand that the silent treatment is not going to be a part of a healthy relationship. And unfortunately, the reason why I was using the language of Cold War and war is because it is turning things into a winning type of dynamic. How can I win against my partner? How can I get my way or prove that I was right and they were wrong? So sadly, when we go to that approach, we are already creating a lose-lose situation where it can't make things better in the end. It's going to just make things worse. So ask yourself, am I someone who's afraid to express themselves? Do I think it's hard to share my feelings? Also, do I feel like my partner listens to me when I share my feelings? Because if we feel like they don't, You obviously won't feel very comfortable to express yourself or share what you're feeling 
with your partner and with them. So it could be, again, a dynamic thing to look at. And what I always encourage partners to do is not to just look at the relationships as mine or yours. Yes, they could be coming more from your own individual personality, psyche, things that are going on. But now that that's the case, it's a we issue. So if I have this tendency to go quiet, use the silent treatment, if we want to change that, how do we make that happen together? How can I be more upfront about what I'm saying and not hold things back or go into the silent mode? And also, here are maybe some ways you can make it easier for me to share what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. It becomes a we type of problem. So we move away from the me versus you in the argument. And we also look at this issue itself as a we, how can we make things better? How can we resolve them and make it so that we can get to a better place with whatever that is? So I just wanted to share some thoughts there about the silent treatment because it's used so often, unfortunately, in relationships as a way of dealing with arguments, dealing with disagreements, trying to get the power in the relationship, which when we fight for power, we're also going to lose at the end with our partner. Um, but just some thoughts there on, on that. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about a topic I've discussed recently because it's been on my mind a lot in trying to understand our legacy or the question that people often ask of how we want to be remembered. Because you, you hear that a lot. People in interviews, especially of celebrities, athletes, someone, they'll ask, how do you want to be remembered? And it's understandable that we would care about that, have a feeling about that in the moment because we're imagining something. We're imagining, well, in a hundred years, oh, there's going to be people celebrating me or remembering me as this great scientist or this great athlete or the best at this or a good person or whatever it might be. And it's understandable that we would feel good if they remembered us better, obviously. But it's an interesting notion because if you are dead, well, then you are not there to experience those things are the way that ways that people remember you or what they're saying about you. Uh, now, of course, if you believe in an afterlife, and I think that's no one has an answer on that, maybe you'll think I'll look down and see something. But most notions people have of an afterlife is that you're not going to care about the same things you care about on Earth anyway. So people's opinions of you or if they're celebrating you or talking about you in a certain way likely wouldn't play a role in that or it shouldn't. And so I've had a, a hard time trying to, to understand this, or I've been thinking about it or trying to explore this a bit of what we think about this and then how it might impact what we actually do in this life, which I think might not be in our best interest or in the best interest of what we want to do because of this notion that we need to think of how we're going to be remembered or we might put an emphasis on that. It's kind of like saying, what song do you want to be played 10 years from now or uh, 100 years from now when you're not alive and you say this song? Now, you might feel something about thinking that the song is played, but you're not there to enjoy it. So should it make a difference what that song is? And this is why I think it's more important to focus on doing what you think is right and good and for the greater good and the greatest good of 
the most people and going forward because you think it's good but not necessarily because you will be remembered for it or there will be a legacy that will necessarily be tied to you but there hopefully will be a legacy of the actions that you take and the things that you do there's this uh, adage of you know wisdom or something about how if you plant a tree whose um, shade you will never get to enjoy that's some level of wisdom or level of being a good person is if you're willing to plant a tree knowing that you will never enjoy the fruits of that tree or enjoy that tree in any way because it's going to grow let's say over hundreds of years or something like that where you won't even be there to really enjoy it when it's stronger when it actually bears fruit in some way and to me that is a way of making your life meaningful is to focus on doing the things that you think are good and making the world better and make it something that leaves a better world for others if you think that's the right thing to do and feel good about what you're doing in the moment but the results and how you're going to be remembered for it we have to be more detached from so to begin with i think one of the reasons why we can be preoccupied with this one is with our imagination we can imagine okay you know if in a hundred years this is happening and of course we use our current living brain to think about that and then to feel about it we feel something say oh i, I want this for a hundred years from now but then if you realize part of that is tied into how you feel about yourself and things that you won't actually experience you hopefully can override that feeling and re realize that yes because i'm imagining it i feel something but that doesn't mean that that should be the result of what's happening at that time or for example as i said with that song idea if you think of what song is played a hundred years from now when you are not there well hopefully you would say i'd want it to be a song that the people there enjoy whoever is there enjoys it not a song me who is dead would like what difference should that make so what should be the difference of people having a conversation about you a hundred years from now right now when you think about it of course i want them to say good things i want them to remember me in this way but that's because you're feeling it in your current brain and body that you're having that experience so our sense of self is a big part of this type of conversation that we're having here. And there is a whole uh, school of thought of is our self even a fallacy to some degree, the amount that we put pressure on ourselves to see ourselves as so important and special. Could that be a way of allowing us to be more preoccupied and obsessed with passing on our genes because I am so important in some way? And I think there is some truth to that, this over-exaggerated sense of our self as being so important and being so differentiated and disconnected from others. More and more, I'm seeing the world as interconnected in a way that is less separate than we sometimes can perceive it or how we perceive it. But of course, we know our perceptions are limited. We can only see things in a certain way. So we're obsessed with ourselves and then we're obsessed with passing on our genes even though we might not be consciously aware of it but this is a type of biological imperative that we're always going to be thinking about or preoccupied with is how we can keep ourselves going in that way so we think of it as i'm being passed down in some way so that sense of self is very important for us of how will people see me or remember me 
And so similar to that, as I was just saying, seeing and remembering, I think that's what people are also thinking about. It's like this me that is being passed down. And I think that's why people can be preoccupied with what is my legacy? How do I continue after I die? Because we have this fear, this existential threat of dying and no longer existing, which can be terrifying and make us feel really even scared or anxious about it. But because of that, we then think, well, if I'm somehow living through something, whether it's through my children or through some type of legacy or people remembering me, I think it gives us this solace that I am still alive in some way. I don't die. So in some ways, we have this um, push to go away from this existential demise of us no longer existing that makes us want to live in some type of fashion, some way. So when people say, how do you want to be remembered? There's a way that it makes us get excited or makes us want it to be something really special and magnificent, something that people will celebrate us and say such good things about us. And we can be preoccupied with that. So sometimes when I people ask, how do you want to be remembered when you hear it asked to others? And I try to think about it myself. I'm not quite sure, but I'd actually like to live a life where I'm not thinking so much about how I'm going to be remembered. Of course, I want to do good things. So yes, you might think, well, I want to be a good person. So people would see that and would notice that because I'm being good, not doing it so I would get noticed, but being a good person. But to not let that affect what we do or the way we take actions because I think people can be so focused on how they get remembered it could impact the decisions we make the ways we do things work on things uh, the ways that we uh, want uh, something to go or we you know people fight over who gets the name on this who's the author of this who came up with this theory we see it in history at different times where who's going to get credit for coming up with this theory invention uh, equation whatever it might be. And so because of that, they might even fight in a way that's anti-science, anti-progress, because they're trying to win this battle rather than try to just advance the ideas and advance the knowledge and understanding that we are having. And this is exactly what I think is the problem. Now, some of that might be that they want to enjoy the fruits of being the uh, winner in that type of a game. Um, in their own lifetime so they know they'll get fame and, and money and all sorts of other things that could come with being the person who did this or does that but some of it could also be because of the legacy of people knowing who they were that continuing in some way and that's where I think it could be an issue so let's say you have a team of people group of scientists working on some project and they can be focused on or preoccupied with who's going to be the one that gets their name on this. And this brings up another issue that for me more and more is becoming clear, or at least I'm, I'm figuring it out for myself, that we lose a lot when we're putting too much emphasis on who is the person for this, which goes back to how we celebrate certain individuals or we celebrate certain things that have come about. Of course, we should recognize good things that people do and recognize them throughout history. But I do think there's a way that history is too much, as they say, written by the winners in the sense that most accomplishments get put onto one name. In some ways, I think it's also because it simplifies it. So who came up with this? Oh, it's this person. Who came with that? It's this person. Who's responsible for this thing? It's this one person. When almost no accomplishments have been done in that way, that it was one person. 
teams of people have been working on it. The work that they're doing is now based on work from other people. If I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulder of giants that I can see further. It wasn't just that person's work in their lifetime, even if they did work alone. And there is this myth of the scientist working all by themselves, which is not that real, or we don't even see it in history, and especially now, where the one person is doing all that work. But I think for simplicity's sake, for the sake that we like to have heroes, that we make bigger than life, larger than life, somehow this person is, is a, becomes a god in a way, we do like to do that. And so this is one of the consequences of that. We give too much credit for things that were really a group or really a global type of an accomplishment, or at least over time, a historical accomplishment. We give it all to one person. And then because of that, people fight for it too in the rest of their lives of, or during their lives that how can I be the one that's remembered for this because I want it to be such and such theory. And I, I can get the feeling because I've noticed that in myself or I've seen it where pe- you know I have this feeling it would be nice if people had this concept that I came up with and it was named after me in some way. I, I would be lying if I didn't recognize that that does have a nice feeling, a nice kind of ring to it to think that that would be the case. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't want it at all or it doesn't make sense that it would feel good or it comes to us as a good feeling, but that we wouldn't want that to be the driving force. So I would hope that if I came up with some idea and then someone approached me to collaborate on that idea that actually could make it better, but if I felt threatened that, you know what, but then it won't just be my name, so I shouldn't work with them, that to me would be the wrong motivation. That would be using a feeling that is really not that significant because it's a feeling about something that's in a future that I won't even experience myself to guide some of what I'm doing now, which if I'm doing it to help others, and I think it's good to help others, then I would be getting in the way of that. So I think rather than focusing on our legacy of what happens after we die, it's much better to make the focus solely on what we're doing now and being guided by what we think is the right thing and things to do to help. So if you have a value that I want to help the most people possible in some certain domain, how do I make sure I am doing that? And the amount of credit I'm getting will not have to be the driving force. Recognition feels good. Acknowledgement feels good. We all do thrive on that. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do that or shouldn't care about that. But being aware of how much that is driving us. How much am I being driven by the recognition rather than the value of doing the right thing? You know, it's interesting. As I'm saying this, it reminds me of the ways people can live their lives of, well, I want to be guaranteed to go to heaven or some kind of paradise after I die. And so that's why they might do the good thing. And so it's similar to I want to you know have this great afterlife. I want to have this great remembrance here on this planet. So you might even affect what we do. Make sure people see the good things that you're doing. Make sure that it's uh, written down or pictured and, you know, people even putting things on social media at times. And and I get it. We want to promote doing good things. So I feel like it's a gray area. It doesn't mean if you post something charitable, you're doing something wrong. But the intention is always important. Am I doing this to be seen as really special and good, or am I actually trying to do a good thing? Obviously, it's probably going to be some of both. No one dislikes the feeling of being 
uh, seen for doing something good, but we always have to look at our own intentions to try to recognize what's really driving me here. What's the driving force behind taking these actions? So the, the feeling of doing things for others to recognize us, that's a very human type of thing too. Some people even argue some of morality comes from that. It's not just being a good person. It's more important to be seen as a good person because that's going to have consequences for how people treat you, resources, connections, access to different things, and, and all of those uh, you know things that come with it. So I understand that. But I do think it's an interesting thing to ponder that when we reflect on our legacy, reflect on how we want to be remembered, to make sure that what's driving us is not the way history will necessarily write it down, which oftentimes is going to be out of your control, but more about what you actually do and having that be driven by the right values, the right purpose, and the rest will be out of your hands. And for better or for worse, you won't be here to see what comes of it, how you will be remembered. One would hope that is if you could be, you know, if you could save someone's life, but it won't be seen, or even they'll think you killed someone, and for all of history you'll be seen in that way, I would hope that I would choose saving the person's life, even if it's uh, remembered in the wrong way or it looks obvious that something is going to be misconstrued about what happened. If I think the value of uh, being good to others, kindness, saving life is a good thing, hopefully that's going to drive me, not how history will see what I did. So how will you be remembered? Well, you won't have a lot of control over that, but how will you do what you do and how you live your life? That's up to you, and I hope that will drive you more than the memory of what people will think or how history will remember what you've done. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to talk about an analogy that might help us understand that when children grow up in a home and if they are abused, Rather than thinking their parents are bad, they tend to internalize that they are somehow bad and not good, which is very sad and uh, heartbreaking to see, obviously, in the child, but even in adults, you'll see it, that this feeling is that if my parents treated me in this way, it must have been because I was bad or, or not good enough. And so most people would logically think that if a parent is abusing their child, the parent is at fault not the child, but for the child, we can understand that they un internalize a very different message and internalize a very different understanding of the situation and of themselves. So if a child is being uh, hurt by their parents, we have to look at how they see their parents. They do see their parents as all-powerful and um, almost omnipotent from as their stage as a, a baby, someone that takes care of them, obviously so many times their size and their strength and capability and so many other things that it makes sense that they see their parents in this way. And quite literally, they can't live and survive without their parents or their caregivers to take care of them. So these adults, these primary caregivers do have this feeling of almost like being their God, right? They can control everything. They seem to have these powers that even, especially when you're a baby, you might really under, not understand or get, but they seem to have control and power over everything. And we can understand that this is a necessary feeling for the child to have. It feels good 
to think that my parents can take care of me, that they can protect me, that they can provide for me. That's what the child needs to feel. And this is part of attachment is I need this person to survive quite literally when they're babies. And as they get older, that emotion still can stay. I need this person to survive. Without them, I die. That's why abandonment is such a scary thing. Even as an adult, if you have this feeling of abandonment that we talk about, it's not just this, oh, the person's not around and that doesn't feel nice. It's that I literally die without them. And you even hear this in love songs and poetry when you know people are talking about not being able to survive without the other person. I die without you. Some of that is very you know dramatic or histrionic in a way, but there is something underneath that feeling that we can't live without this attachment figure because as mammals that there is some truth to that. So the child needs to have this feeling that their parent is this powerful. And so uh, something that I think is interesting when you look at that relates to this of the parent being more powerful than they probably are is when a child is afraid of a monster, let's say being in their room, under their bed, in the closet, whatever it might be. And they run to their parents and when they go to their parents, they feel so safe. They feel okay. Now my mom is holding me. My dad is holding me. I'm going to be okay. But probably the monster they were imagining in their head was much bigger and more terrifying than their actual parent is. So really, if we're just looking at it in this kind of a logical way, it's there's no way their parent would actually be able to defend them from this monster. But the feeling they have is calm and secure. And as I'm saying this, yes, we can say, oh, how cute little kids think in this way. But this doesn't go away even as we get older. Not necessarily that we imagine there's monsters in our room or in our beds, but we get comfort and a sense of security when a loved one gives us a hug, holds us, holds our hand even, even if it doesn't solve the problem, even if they can't overpower whatever the monster is, emotional or otherwise, it still can make us feel much better. Like the studies that have been done where if a woman is um, being shocked in some way and they're going to feel pain, they feel less pain if their loved one, their husband, is holding their hand. And I think I, the research I saw was done with women for some reason, but I would imagine the same would be true of men. But this sense that the shock is not going to go away. They're still going to be physically hurt in that way or what's going to happen to them is the same, but it actually feels less scary, less painful. So we can understand that by being social beings, we do have this sense that we can get comforted by others. And most of the time, and this is something to keep in mind in general, we can't do something about the problem that our loved one is going through. But just by being there, it could make it at least easier. doesn't mean it'll be easy or painless, but it could be less painful to have you there. And so oftentimes people will feel like, well, I can't do anything about it. So why should I be there? Or what should I do? Just being there can be enough and be a lot to help someone. So coming back to the the children, unfortunately, they are dependent on these people to take care of them. And what sadly can happen is those same people can start to hurt them and abuse them in different ways. And this is, of course, very damaging to the child in in many ways. Um, Something that I've found fascinating, very heartbreaking, but interesting nonetheless. Uh, Some neuroscience research over the past years has shown that based on the type of 
abuse a child has experienced, different parts of the brain might be affected. So, for example, if it was verbal abuse, the auditory cortex or the parts of the brain involved with listening might see some damage or some changes. And I think for physical abuse, it might be the, the somatosensory cortex. So um, it's, it's sad because it shouldn't be happening at all. And the abuse is heartbreaking and sad, but it's incredible the ways that specific abuse might even create specific types of issues, at least in some ways. Um, but, but that research I've seen in a few books that, I, that I've read recently. Now, coming back to the child and what they're experiencing, of course, they're fe feeling horrible. And so they're getting hurt by this person that they love. And imagine that fear of the person that's supposed to protect me is hurting me. It can be very, very hard to comprehend that or to process that. How can you make sense of the very person that's supposed to protect you from danger is creating danger. The person that's supposed to protect you from pain is giving you pain, inflicting severe pain, which makes it so, so devastating for a child to experience that. But sadly, we know it does happen and is happening. And so the child can internalize this in many ways rather than we would hope they would think. And when you get older, you would hope the person thinks this and you talk to someone that, well, you should think your mom or dad was being, uh, you know, bad and there was something wrong with them that they were hitting you. But most of the time, at least during those years, the internalization is I was the problem. I was bad in some way. If I was a good boy or a good girl, this wouldn't happen. And we can get this because even in an abusive home, it doesn't mean abuse was constant. It does come up in certain ways. Something happens, the kid does something quote unquote wrong. I say that because it doesn't deserve the punishment they got, but let's say they did something and then they get punished in that way. So the child does feel like they're doing something. If I was good, if I was better, uh, this wouldn't happen. Uh, so many times I've heard from people in therapy that, you know, they say, my mom used to hit me or my dad used to hit me. And then they'll add, but I was a really bad kid. As if it justifies the hitting or it somehow makes it okay that they were hit or, yeah, they had no other choice. And so it was deserved, which is very sad. And I do have to, to stop them and let them know it, it doesn't matter that if you were, you know, as you're saying bad or what you did, but to get treated that way is never okay for a child for that to happen. That was not okay no matter what you did. So to say you deserved it is not fair and that's not the reality to say that your parents should have hit you and abused you. So the child sadly does internalize the sense that I was the problem, I am the problem, I am bad. Also, they do tend to internalize this sense. As I was saying, it's this person that's supposed to protect me who did this. And I've seen this happen so many times with people in therapy as we explore entering relationships as they get older, that if the people who were sworn to take care of me, protect me, love me, give me all the good feelings, they hurt me. How can I expect that some stranger, a new person I meet is going to treat me just with love and care and won't hurt me and it's an understandable place to to feel we would hope they can overcome that and try to trust others that they could be different from their parents also try to understand their parents and as you get older you can recognize that your parents aren't just this these omnipotent figures that they are people who had pasts and have issues and have dealt with things that now made them a certain way. And so maybe they were the problem. Still, it takes time to change those deep feelings that have been 
ingrained. But unfortunately, the feeling can be, how can I trust others if this is how those people that were supposed to take care of me treated me? And so the sense is I was wrong. They were probably good, especially when you were a kid. And so now here I'll introduce the analogy that I think can help illustrate this point of even how it might make sense or be adaptive, at least for that time being, to internalize that I'm the problem. My parents are okay. I'm not right. They're right. Or I'm not good. They're good. That that can actually be better than saying I'm good and they're bad. So imagine you're on a plane and you're, you're sitting there and you, you know, things are going okay. And, you know, the pilot comes on and has a few messages about what's going on. And we're flying over this, the flight's this long, the weather where you're landing is this temperature. And then all of a sudden you look out and you feel like you're really low. And what you see out the window looks like you're way too low and you are going to hit the mountain that's coming up and you're really confused and you're concerned. And then you hear the pilot come on the overhead speaker or whatever you call it and say, oh, we're 30,000 feet in the air at a safe altitude. and, And that's what's going on. And you keep looking out the window and you think, this looks like we're about to hit the mountain. I don't know what the pilot is saying. We don't look like we're flying at a safe altitude. And the pilot comes on again and says, yeah, we're at 29,000 feet. Clear skies shouldn't be a bumpy ride. It's going to be smooth. Now, if you ask yourself, who do you hope is wrong? You will likely think as much as we do like being right, that you would really hope you're wrong. I hope What looks to me like we're about to hit the mountain is not true, that I'm somehow wrong and bad here. And I hope the pilot is right because he or she is the one that's actually flying the ship, can control the the plane and what is going to happen to me within this plane. So I really would rather be so wrong and for the pilot to be so right. And so when you are growing up and your parents are the ones that have so much control over your life, they're the ones that can make sure you survive. If they're bad, then maybe you're unsafe. It could be understandable to have this even desire to want them to be right, that it can be safer to think even if my parent is hitting me, it's not that they're bad in some way. It's actually because this they're, they're right and I'm wrong because they're the one that have to take care of me. Now, this is happening in an unconscious type of a way, but it just gives you some insight or idea into this dynamic that's at play is that the person who is hurting you, you still rely on them so much that it's much easier to think or it's beneficial in a way to think that they are right and you are wrong. It makes me think that there could be some connection here with Stockholm Syndrome, which there's a lot of things going on there where people who are held hostage can have favorable feelings and even fall in love or have love for their uh, the people that are keeping them hostage over time. But in a similar way, you're growing up in a home and this person that is controlling everything and has control over your life, it's much easier and could be even in that time beneficial to have this mindset and strategy that they're good and I'm bad. And what happens with all of us is as we get older, well, first we have these strategies that help us get through childhood. Things like, I'm bad, my parents are good, and that's why this happened. But unfortunately, when we grow out of our home and try to enter other stages of our life, we often still have those mindsets and strategies. They become automatic ways and frameworks of looking at the world. And this is why that I am bad fallacy doesn't just go away once the person 
leaves the house. They're not feeling, well, now I'm good. That was just in the home that I felt that way or they made me feel that way. They carry it with them. And sadly, you can create these very deeply ingrained feelings of inferiority, unlovability. I'm not good enough. No one is going to love me. And unfortunately, also associating love and pain together, that people that love you hurt you. So if someone is not hurting you, they don't love you. Or if they're hurting you, it could mean actually they love you so much. So there could be this really um, almost addiction to a toxic type of a relationship because somewhere it feels familiar, it feels like home, it feels like that's all that they can get. So there can be a lot of things that have to be worked on uh, over time to recognize that so much of what they sadly had to internalize to survive their childhood no longer implies to the real world. But we could understand that as the kid is going through life, it's safer to think that they are wrong rather than the pilot of the plane is wrong. So I'm the bad one not them. All right, that brings us to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment I did mention attachment figures and how when we lose an attachment figure because we need them to survive when we're babies, it can feel like death and it could give us those feelings. And I did allude to and mention the uh, feeling we can have even in a breakup that you feel like you're dying or I can't live without the person. I can't survive without them. And so it has its foundations in this attachment relationship that is being formed, which then when it it's lost, it can feel like we can't survive without that individual. And so breakups are very painful because of that. It's not just, okay, I can be with someone else or I can date someone else. That's true. But first we do have to deal with the pain. You know, when you're attached, we can imagine has to be torn apart. That feeling that that way that you're attached with that person. And so there's going to need to be a time to heal before you can really quote unquote, move on, you need to give it some time to heal. And that can be a very difficult thing to go through. And so uh, I did want to talk a bit about breakup, something that unless you made a lifelong commitment with the first person you ever met in a romantic way, everyone has experienced at least once in their life and talk some a bit about the things we go through, some um, things to keep in mind and also some concepts that I wanted to discuss related to it. So to begin with, when we go through a breakup, as I just said, it's very painful because we feel like we're losing a person we are dependent on to live, to survive. People don't like to acknowledge that or when we get attached, people can also think of it as a weakness. You shouldn't get attached to anyone. But here's where we have to keep in mind that Although being dependent when you're especially, let's say, as a baby, that's the weakest point. And when you develop, you should move away from that. But it doesn't mean that the goal is to move away from complete dependence to complete independence. As is often the case, the healthier place we want to get to is somewhere in the middle. If one extreme is bad, it doesn't mean the other extreme is healthy. It usually means some type of balance in between is, is the healthy place to be. So when it comes to this continuum of dependence to independence where we are healthier is when we find interdependence which is the reality of our existence that we are uh, needing other people in different ways and we need them socially we need them emotionally we need them to take care of things as far as logistical things we really 
can't survive all on our own. And at a base level, because we are social beings in this way, we need others. We need relationships. That's not a bad thing. Uh, one of the reasons why people like independence or complete independence, they tell themselves it feels strong, but it's also because there's a fear of getting close, a fear of relying on others. And we can understand that because when you need others, when you get close to others, you obviously can't control what they do. And so it does take some level of trusting and some level of giving up control to allow others to have an impact on you. And so sometimes people see this as the goal. I, I don't want to care what anyone does. Okay, I'm with someone and they leave. I don't want to care at all because it makes us feel strong. It makes us feel like no one has power over us. And that desire is understandable to not want to have anyone have the power to hurt us. But that is the reality of our existence. In physical ways, emotional ways, all sorts of ways, we are vulnerable to being hurt. That's just part of life. And eventually, of course, that life even ends and we lead to death. Even your health will not last forever. So we have to recognize that as scary as it can be or it can create some anxiety, relinquishing some control over our lives is the only way we can actually live a full life that includes relationships and getting close to others. So we, we have to accept we're going to be interdependent. And then when we create relationships, you do form an attachment with them. And even that word attachment can have a bad connotation. So if they say, oh, they're, they're too attached or they're attached to that person, we think that's oh, bad. And yeah, of course, people can be overly attached or enmeshed or too dependent on their partners. It's not to say that all of it is going to be healthy if you feel that way. But some level of attachment is very healthy and necessary to form a long-term relationship. Even when we think of falling in love or love, essentially that's the process of attaching to someone. You're forming that attachment bond. So it's there. And as I mentioned, when you tear something that's attached apart, uh, both sides are going to be worse for it, at least temporarily for that time. So we have to be ready for that, that you're not going to feel good at the beginning. So here we have a type of a crossroads that people can find themselves in is where we think, okay, if you're feeling bad, the whole goal is to make yourself feel good in the fastest, easiest way possible. And people do this in all aspects of life, but breakups is one where you see it very commonly. Okay, you're missing this person or you're sad about the breakup. Let's make you happy. So some people will suggest and some people do it themselves, dating someone else. Well, if you're sad because you miss this person, you know, you had a boyfriend and now you don't have them. Well, let's find you another boyfriend. Or if it's your girlfriend, let's find you another girlfriend. And now you're going to be happy. Just like if your child's pet dies, let's buy a new pet. When it's okay, that but does have some benefit maybe or can feel good, but they need to grieve the loss of that last pet really to move on. So if we make our goal just feel good, we miss healing that needs to be happening. Just like if you break your leg and they say, we're going to put you, you know, so many painkillers that you can start walking now, you're probably not going to heal the bone in some way. So you won't even feel that your bone is, is hurt, but you'll, you'll keep walking. And so if that's the only goal is feeling okay again, not feeling the pain, you might take that route. So we want to make sure we don't approach our breakups that way.
they feel horrible and as i said because it's an attachment bond that's being torn apart it can feel really really bad and devastating even but that feeling doesn't last forever the time will heal it if we allow for it to to heal that pain and so we want to give it that space to let that happen but if we only focus on taking away the pain we might not allow for the healing to happen so here a word to friends loved one family members when you see that the person that you love is in pain from a breakup it's understandable that you might not want them to feel that way because you don't want to see them in pain but recognize that they need to go through that they need to have some sadness to really feel the loss to then grieve the loss to be able to move on in a healthy way so people unfortunately mistake removal of pain with healing and they are not the same thing just because pain is gone doesn't mean you have healed and any way that just takes the pain away doesn't necessarily mean healing so using the analogy I use of a broken bone if you inject painkillers in any part of your body that's hurting the pain goes away it doesn't mean that what's causing the pain has healed and so similarly in our emotional lives we have to recognize that what might take away the pain immediately doesn't mean it's actually allowing for the space to heal and to get to a healthier place after the fact. So I mentioned this in the previous segment, your loved one has gone through a breakup and you might think, okay, what do I do to make them feel good? Maybe I find them a new person to date or I badmouth the person they were with of another common response people will do. Um, the person you were with wasn't good at all. You're lucky to not be with them. Oh, we didn't even like him or her to begin with. And we think that bad-mouthing them will make them miss them less in some way when it usually actually doesn't do anything. Most people actually don't feel good because if they broke up for reasons that were just we were in a match or it wasn't working out for some reason, they don't think the person is so bad. And now it's just making them feel worse. Or let's find you this new person to date. That's not going to help really either in the healing process what they need is just someone to be there while they are down so you just don't make the pain go away but you might make it slightly easier for them to get through this part of the healing process they're they're going through now when you're going through a breakup uh, you know there's the attachment going on and in another way we can look at it is it might sound um, dramatic or make it sound unhealthy but it has some themes to an addiction in the sense that when you break up with someone and you have that pain, the easiest way to get rid of that pain would be to talk to that person, connect with that person again. So just like a drug, if you with stop taking a drug and you're going through withdrawals, the easiest way to feel good again is to take some of that drug. That's going to make you feel good better than anything else anyone can do. And so this is why we can't look at pain reduction and elimination as our only goal. We want to look at actual healing and health as our goal. So when you go through a breakup, the fastest thing is to talk again. And that's obviously what so many people do. And even they might even be able to verbalize, I couldn't handle the pain anymore. It was hurting too much. So I, I couldn't deal with that. And so I reached out to that person again. Or when they reached out to me, I answered or responded. And now we talked again and it feels good. Because again, they're getting that feeling back, that drug back. It's making them feel okay. But we have to recognize that if we're really choosing to break up, as hard as it can be, a clean break tends to be the best way to approach it. The desire to connect and communicate with them is very real and understandable. 
as I was saying, it can feel almost like death. So, of course, if you feel like you're about to die and you can cling on to something to save on, you're going to want to save you. You want to cling on to that at any cost. Even if the rope is going to hurt your hand, you don't mind grabbing onto that rope. Even if it leaves your hand bloodied, you'll feel okay with that because you feel like it's saving your life. So that desire is always going to be there to go back to the person to connect in some way. But if you really are trying to make a break, recognizing that even though it hurts more not to talk to them, that's likely going to be a better way of allowing yourself to let time help you move on. Sometimes people, they've broken up and they say, oh, we broke up four months ago and I still miss them so much. And sometimes it's because they're talking and communicating throughout that four months. So you have to actually allow the time to miss them, allow that time to slowly disconnect in order for you to actually move on. So of course you're gonna miss them the more you're in contact with them because you will keep having them in your life and it'll be harder to say goodbye to what you have. And so again, the pain is not what's gonna make the decision for us. The healing is gonna make the decision. What's healthier for us is what's going to drive us in what we can do. And so it's very hard to create that space between yourself and that person that you were so close to. And this is one of the things people say, and it is quite hard to comprehend. Sometimes people were in a relationship where they were so close together, did everything together. That person was so special to them. And all of a sudden they go to nothing and it could feel really weird. And this is why we talk about grieving the loss, because although the person has not died, that relationship has died and the way you knew them has died and the way you are connected to them might no longer be there. So there is a grieving of the loss of this person, of this attachment figure. Not only that, we oftentimes have to grieve the loss of the future we thought we were going to have with them, which is also incredibly painful. When you're in a long-term relationship, usually there's talks and plans of the future, whether it's getting married, having kids, doing this or that in your life, and saying goodbye to that can also be incredibly painful as well. And so we have to recognize that the pain is going to have to be there in our healing process. Now we're going into our last break. After the break, I'll talk some more about breakups. Um, one of the more challenging things we all have to, to go through, but we can see if we can make it not easy, but easier for us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment was talking about breakups, one of the hardest parts of life that we all have to go through. And as I mentioned, what we want to make sure we're doing, which is not just when it comes to breakups, but in life in general, that we don't let avoidance of pain dictate what we do or think that removal of pain is uh, good and healing rather than actually going through the process of letting whatever needs to heal happen and get to a healthier place after the fact. So many people, when they break up, they might talk to the ex again. They might date someone new immediately when they're not ready, might turn to drugs, alcohol, other types of ways of numbing the pain or trying to just create a good feeling. And they might think this is the best way because I'm feeling better. But it is a tough thing to determine is feeling better necessarily just an avoidance of pain or actually the healing that needs to happen. Another thing to keep in mind when you break up is when it's happening, it feels like a forever type of a feeling. So you're in so much pain, you're feeling devastated. As I mentioned, it can make you feel like you are 
can't survive with this person, so how could you ever be okay if you can't survive? It's like thinking, when will I be okay without oxygen? You just think it's not possible. And so people will get so blinded by that pain. And we can understand that that's what pain is supposed to do. It's supposed to make you, in some ways, obsessed and focused on the thing that's hurting you so that you resolve it. So if something is um, cutting your skin or hurting your body in some way, the pain becomes only focus so that you stop it. If you are feeling thirst or hunger and it gets painful, it's this desire to resolve that pain or that create that equilibrium because it wants your body wants you to survive. So similarly, when you are going through the pain and this intense pain of a breakup, there could be the sense that the only thing that matters is getting rid of this pain because it is so bad. And that likely can lead to you wanting to go back to that person because now I'll feel good. Doesn't that mean it's a good thing? I'm feeling better. And so we have to be aware that the pain makes us focused or almost obsessed and preoccupied with the thing that we feel is hurting us. And oftentimes being able to tolerate that or recognize that this pain requires of me to allow for it to heal rather than turning to the quicker relief of the pain can be very challenging. And so that's why all of us at different ways, not just with breakups, but in general, will fall short of always doing the more healing long-term type of a thing and often will go for that short-term gratification and that short-term relief of the pain. But it can be good at times to have perspective. Most people have had more than one breakup. And so it's not to minimize your pain or undermine the relationship that you are in or were in. But you can remember a breakup you had before where when that happened, you felt so devastated that you thought you will never love again. You know, people also, they say, I don't want to even love. People don't tell someone there's other fish in the sea and they say, I don't want any other fish. That was the person I wanted to be with and I only want to be with them. I don't want to be with someone else. And for a while, it might make sense. You can't even think of being with someone else. And so we want to give the person that space to heal. But it can be a good reminder for ourselves to think, okay, remember that breakup three years ago where I was so devastated, I thought I can't go on. Life will never be good again. I'll never want to love again. How do I know if I'll love again? Uh, All those kinds of thoughts that can come to us. But then I obviously got over that person and that breakup and healed and then started this new relationship. So I know this feeling feels like a forever feeling or it feels so bad or when you're in it, it always feels like this time is different. And it makes sense. That's how pain has to work. It has to make us feel like you can't ignore it this time because this is real. It's there and it feels very real. But it can give us some perspective if we recognize that, okay, I've, I've been here before. And although it feels horrible, it feels really bad. I know that this is not a forever feeling like all types of feelings that come. They don't last forever. This one might last some time which is what breakups tend to do. They tend to not just be something we get over so quickly. They take some time, but that doesn't mean it lasts forever or that I won't be or I can't be okay again. So it can be a good reminder. Now, these types of things, if someone tells you, might feel different. And as always, when we give someone support, we have to be aware of what we're saying to them and if they feel ready to hear that or accept that and we can't push that on them to say oh you say you're sad but remember that other breakup you were so sad come on you're going to be okay 
you know, if you say it that way, obviously, but even if you say, remember that breakup, so you'll probably be okay this time, you have to see where the person is at. They might not be ready to, to hear it or accept it at that time, and we want to give them that space. Now, another thing to keep in mind when it comes to any kind of grieving or healing that happens is that it's not what we would call linear, meaning that it's not that every day is going to be better than the day before and that the improvements and the increment of getting better is exactly the same throughout the process. That's not how things go. And that can make things feel even more confusing because you're feeling like you're getting better. And many people have this experience that all of a sudden after a while where they feel like they're okay and maybe even like, you know what, I think I'm actually over it. They'll wake up one day or something will happen and all of a sudden they feel so bad that it's almost like the first day all over again. And it could be a little scary because you think, wait, I thought I was healing. And if I feel as bad as I did in the first day, maybe I'm never going to get better. But these things are not necessarily an indication that you're not getting better. It's just that there's so many things that are going on at the same time in our experience that are going to affect us in different ways. Our mood fluctuates no matter what, we have some types of ups and downs. Some people have them more, some less, some people have them extreme in the case of things like bipolar disorder, but all of us have ups and downs with our moods, hormones, uh, all sorts of things happening in our lives, the season, so many different factors can affect you that you could wake up one day feeling much worse. And so this is true in breakups and also grieving a loss through death where people often feel like, I thought I was totally over it. Then I woke up one day crying nonstop and I was really surprised. You know, our emotions are not something that we can exactly predict. The hope is that the overall trend, and this kind of reminds me of like a looking at a stock price over time, is that overall the trend is that it's going up, let's say, or this way your pain is going down. It doesn't mean that it's only a straight line down. There's some ups and downs in that downward trend, but it's overall towards healing. Now, another thing about missing the person, because I hear this at times where someone says, well, it's been a month and I still think about them and I still miss them. So maybe that means we were right for each other. And definitely I can say, obviously I can't say it's always not the case, but not necessarily you miss someone just because you're attached to them and you're always going to miss them. And this could be a way that our brains are very good at tricking us into going towards that short term and that immediate gratification, just like an addict might think, oh, you know what, I should quit on a Monday, so I should use today. Um, we have lots of ways of tricking ourselves going towards the thing that feels good. You know what, if I'm missing this person so much after two weeks, it must just mean that we were meant to be and we were so right for each other, so I should go back to them. And so missing the person is definitely not an indication that you definitely were right for each other. We have to remember why we broke up. And another thing we can do is after a breakup and when we're feeling this way, we forget the negative and remember the positive. Another way of trying to trick us going back towards that thing. You, you know what? They were so good. What if no one ever, you know, does that thing that they did for me or would be in this way? I'll never find someone that good in this way. We had so many good times and you reflect on good memories. And that's could be part of the process. You need to process those good things. But not to put a downer on things, but to be realistic, you have to also remember, well, there was a reason why you broke up. And don't forget those reasons. There was something that led to you not being together. And so make sure those those types of things don't totally go in the background and you remember them as well.
you want to reconnect with them so those memories can come up to want you to to be with them but that could be your brain tricking you into giving you that short-term gratification that immediate gratification and that relief from the pain so again if the pain is the only thing guiding us we can find ourselves in trouble and go into an unhealthy place or make some unhealthy decisions in what we do we don't want to let the pain make that decision now as far as when I was talking about going back to them there is this issue of communicating after a breakup and there is the adage of no relationships or no friendships after a relationship which I think definitely as a general rule is a good one of course there can be some exceptions to rules but I think it does make sense because if you've had that type of a relationship a romantic relationship bond it can be very very difficult to have a just friendship of some sort and it almost always leads to complications when one or either individual or both enter into romantic relationships when there is some kind of connection so there is this desire to keep that person in your life because of this attachment that was with them very often during the breakup people will say but I want us to be friends and they might even mean it or they might think they mean it but part of that is also because we don't want it to be a forever goodbye because that feels so painful to think we're never going to talk again we're never going to see each other again so very often in a breakup people will say no I want us to still be friends or feel like we can talk and it's even the sense of I can reach out to you if I needed you or if I really wanted to talk to you so it's an understandable feeling but I tend to think it's better not to have that communication because again using that drug analogy if you are trying to withdraw and stop needing something and having that attachment type of a bond you need to cut it out from your life which can be sad but it can be the sad reality that this can lead to more healing if we allow for ourselves to have that space if there isn't space you don't get to move on because you're still connected to that person and even related to that the, there's things like having pictures having the, the objects that you gave to one another and it's not that these things have to be immediate but I tend to think it's a better idea to get rid of those kinds of things. Now, if you want to put them somewhere out of sight, at least that that's one thing. When it comes to pictures and videos and things, I think that it's better to get rid of those as well. They are only going to be sources of reminding you of something that really isn't there anymore. The memories are there. The experiences are there, but the relationship has changed. So people will often go back and keep looking at pictures and, you know, there's the kind of imagining this cliche kind of thing that people can do. And we all might do it where you look at the old pictures and play a romantic song and just start reflecting on them and crying and remembering all the good times. And you might need some of that. So I'm not saying the moment you break up, you have to immediately erase all, um, you know, uh, evidence that this person even existed in your life. But being aware of going through the pictures, going through the videos and constantly doing that every day is another way of keeping you connected and keeping you stuck. So time heals, but it depends on what we do with the time. If you're talking to the person every day, seeing them every day, time won't heal in the sense of you'll start to get over them and over the relationship not being there. If you're looking at the pictures all day, every day in an obsessive way, that's not going to help you get over it either. That's not going to allow for time to heal for you to move forward and move past it. Now, the question comes up of, yes, if you're agreeing that it's good not to immediately start dating, when can you start dating? 
And I've heard of certain timelines. Well, it's half as long as the relationship. So if you were together two years, you have to wait one year. Uh, I don't like usually those kinds of strict numbers because I think it is very much a uh, more flexible guideline is important. But you do want to look at a few things. One is how much are you thinking about that person? And this is an interesting one because when you're breaking up, you think about the person every day and you can't even imagine a day where you won't even think about them every day. Um, But what I think is a kind of funny thing is that you're going to have a day where you no longer think about them. But of course, that won't come to your mind. So this day you're waiting for that you might not think about them anymore. You won't be aware of it when it happens because for it to happen, you have to not be aware of them. So you can't be thinking of it. But there will be a day where you don't think about them. What usually will happen is you won't think of them for a few days and something will remind you of them. And then you might be like, oh, wow, I haven't thought about them for a few days. That's almost seems odd because of how obsessed I was uh, during the relationship and then at the beginning of the breakup. But so if you're thinking about them every day and often, that means you're probably not ready to move on. Another thing is if you find yourself very strongly comparing any new person with them, people sometimes will go on a date and all they can do is think about, oh, she wouldn't have done that or she was like this or she was more that or he was more this way or he never did this thing or we talked about this together. If you find yourself strongly comparing the person with anyone you're dating now with your previous partner, that means you're not ready to move on and to be with someone else. And if you find yourself um, looking at things in the way of comparing everything with that relationship, that's also not good. Something people will say is like, oh, I went on this first date and it was nothing like how I felt with my ex-boyfriend or my ex-girlfriend. Well, of course, a first date can never feel the same as a relationship of two years and how you felt with them. It has to feel like a first date where you barely know each other. That's okay. It's not an indication that this person is wrong for you. It might be an indication that you're not ready to move on. So there isn't going to be a strict date or timeline or way of knowing, but you will have to look at yourself and see how much am I still thinking about and comparing and connected even mentally and emotionally with that person. And until you're feeling more ready to meet someone else, don't force it because very often people start relationships before they've healed the previous one and it almost always leads to a bad outcome. But do have to wrap up for now. Um, big thank you to Ghazaleh who is in the studio and also now Farhu who is closing off the show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.